The Church at Laodicea. In 1922, Helen Limmel penned the words that we still sing today, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This does not mean that the problems of the world will go away, or even that the prosperity of this earth will become less than real, but that we will have a proper perspective of the things on earth. We must not let prosperity in this world distract us from our focus on what is really important in life. The seventh and final church to receive its evaluation from our Lord in the book of Revelation is the church at Laodicea. And it seems as though our Lord did not save the best for last, but perhaps the worst for last. As a general rule, these churches, these seven churches that Jesus addresses, received both a commendation and a rebuke. Philadelphia didn't receive a rebuke, but Laodicea didn't receive a commendation. Last week I mentioned that, in my view, Laodicea was the worst of the churches, but on further reflection, I might have been wiser to say that it looks like Laodicea certainly wasn't among the best because it's Jesus' job to evaluate. But I said that last week based upon the fact that Jesus does not offer any commendation, any positive news to this church at all. Under Roman rule, Laodicea became a very wealthy city, it participated in the wool trade. It was wealthy enough that after an earthquake occurred there in AD 60, Laodicea was able to rebuild the city on their own without any help from Rome and without any outside help at all. But sometimes, sometimes, wealth can become a problem rather than a blessing. Sometimes having a great deal of money can be a distraction. Sometimes it can pull us away from our focus and our dependence upon God for our every need. It can also tempt us to become self-focused and independent. The whole idea, you see advertisements on every football game out there, the whole idea of being financially independent, use this broker or that broker or this house or that house, that can, can be, it can be a negative if we think, even it's in the, the darkest recesses of our soul, that because we have a certain amount of financial prosperity, we need God a little less. I don't need him just quite as much as I used to because I have plenty of money now. We would never admit that. We would never let those words pass our lips as a believer. But I'm talking about in the deep recesses of our soul. Have we ever thought that? If that ever becomes the case, please know that God can easily take it all away. And he may also and he often does, bring stresses into the life that money can't help. So be very careful thinking that financial independence is a solution to all of our problems. In fact, we study a church tonight that very well may have felt like their financial independence because of the wealth of their city and the wealth of the individual believers there caused them to think they didn't need God quite as much as maybe somebody else does. In chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, the last, 
of these messages to the churches. The text reads this way, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Then perhaps the most well-known verse in this, to this church, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as also I have overcome and sat down on my father's and on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's no evidence that Paul himself ever visited Laodicea, but it's clear that he knew something. Now, this is written by John, recorded what Jesus says, but Paul at least knew of the Laodicean believers because there's a non-canonical letter to Laodicea that's mentioned in Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, it was supposed to be read in Colossae. The letter to the Colossians was supposed to be read in Laodicea. They had biblical teaching. That's the reason I bring that up in the first place. It's, in, it's impossible to know for sure, but it's probable that the letter to the Ephesians was also intended to be read in the city of Laodicea. When Jesus introduces himself, he says to this final church, the Amen, the faithful and true witness. When we pray... We often use the term amen, which means something like I believe it or that settles it and or, or so be it perhaps. Sometimes we just don't know what we're saying when we say amen, we just do it. But that's what it really means. It's so be it. This, this is what I prayed. So be it, Lord. Well, Jesus calls himself the amen, meaning that he's sovereign. What he promises will be fulfilled. So he's saying, I'm, I'm the so be it. I am the amen. He's the epitome of the so be it. He's also faithful and true. And as we saw in the letter to the Colossians, where he was said to be the firstborn over all creation, here he's the arche, he's the beginning of the creation of God. Not indicating a temporal beginning, but actually indicating eternality and his position as God, just like in John 1, 1. He's faithful and true. In verse 15, he immediately reminds them and us that he's God by telling them, I know your deeds. It's quite a statement to say, I know something about somebody. I'm not saying that we can't know anything with certainty. We can know some things with certainty, but I can't know what you're thinking for, with certainty, by, for example. You can't know what I'm thinking with certainty. I don't know your deeds with certainty because some of your deeds are done in, in quiet, in obscurity. I don't follow you around and watch what you do all day long. But God sees everything. He knows exactly what their deeds are. And he describes them here in an interesting way. He says that you're neither cold or hot. Then he says, I would really rather 
you either be cold or hot. This is an interesting idea. Many recognize, many who write about this, recognize the hot believer as one who is really a believer. And the cold individual in this passage as one who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus. Or at least a, I would say the majority of commentaries look at it that way. They see cold, not a Christian, hot, a true Christian, and it's actually easier to work with if you're cold or hot rather than somebody that's in the middle. They recognize the cold one as a non-Christian, but the lukewarm Christian is where we have a little bit of a problem. In order to make this whole thing work, sometimes people introduce a somewhat cloudy theological category with respect to this one who's called lukewarm. If you carefully examine the literature on the subject, the commentaries or journal articles, uh, many like to cast the lukewarm individual as one who is a professing believer, but not really a believer. So you see a hot one is a believer, cold one is not a believer, the middle one is a, they're not a believer. My point is this, there isn't any middle category. That's the problem with trying to make too much of this match up theologically. There isn't a, a, a middle category. And I find some of, the, some of the best writers on this subject get themselves caught up in this. One very, very fine writer knows a lot about the book of Revelation. Even he, in the beginning of the chapter, will say these lukewarm people are people who are pro professed to be believers but aren't really believers. Two pages later, he catches himself and says, well, actually, you're either a believer or not a believer. The whole professing thing is, is a false point. My point to you tonight is this. This is an unfortunate theological category that people have created. Someone who just says they're a believer or thinks they're a believer, but they're not really a believer. Or they sometimes call them a false believer. It's here, I, I want to stop for just a second and discuss a theological issue that I think we have to become clear about because it's actually been in a problem in a couple of the other churches as well, and I told you I would cover it when we got to Laodicea. It truly bothers people. It bothers believers in the Lord Jesus when a person says they're a believer and we, we see no evidence in their lives of any kind of change. It bothers people so much that sometimes they come up with separate theological categories that are hard-pressed to find in the scriptures. After all, didn't Jesus say, by their fruits you shall know them? Doesn't that mean then that we should be able to look at what my friend here does and I, sh I should be able to determine whether he's a believer or not? Actually, that's not the context of that previous statement. The context of the previous statement it was speaking about false teachers in the Sermon on the Mountain. Jesus says, you'll know the false teachers by the production that they have. It's not a blanket statement that I can evaluate your works and determine if you're a believer or not. Jesus said in verse 15, I know your deeds. I can't say I know your deeds because there's some stuff that you do in secret that I don't know. There are thoughts you have. There are prayers that you have prayed. The late Zane Hodges was one of the champions of this idea that salvation is by grace through faith. In Christ alone, apart from any works that you could do, Zane Hodges was often accused of saying that a person could live their whole life as a believer and never do anything good or righteous at all. 
I had breakfast with St. Hodges, and he per- I personally asked him that question. And he said, Bruce, I have never said that. I have never once written that, that a person could live their whole life as they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have a new nature, and never produce one single good work. He said, I suppose it may be theoretically possible, but practically it's impossible. He said, what I do say, though, and this is St. Hodges is with the Lord now, but he said, what I do say in defending the gospel of Jesus Christ is we can't know what other people's good works are. And we categorize good works in such a way that if I can see it, then you must be a believer. That is not the proper application of that passage in the Sermon on the Mount, that by their fruits you shall know them. It is not the proper application. Jesus knows. And look, you've either trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life, or you haven't trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and grant you eternal life. There's, there's no middle category. Now, there is a category. This is so germane to the passage tonight, there is a category of a person who has trusted Jesus Christ. Now watch, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, do you have the righteousness of God? You better say yes. I mean, because either you have it or you don't. If you've trusted him, you have been justified and you have his righteousness. If you've trusted Jesus Christ at any point in time in your life, do you have eternal life? You better say yes, because you have. Otherwise, you do great theological damage all across the line of soteriology. So either you have it or you don't. Now watch. If you have it, does that mean that you are going to consistently do good works from the point of time to when you're saved to the point of time when you're taken home? No, it doesn't mean that. If it meant it, then we would have way, we would have an abundance of superfluous passages in Scripture encouraging me to obey God. If it was an automatic, I wouldn't have to be urged to do it. It's not automatic. I have to make choices to do that. And if a choice is involved, and if it's a real choice, there's a possibility of me failing. As a believer, there's a possibility of me failing. I'm not saying it's a probability. It shouldn't be, but sometimes it is. But back to St. Hodges, the quote I gave you a minute ago, something he told me directly, right straight to my face. He said, I've never said that anyone can live their whole life without even performing one good work. By the way, Charles Ryrie, who was another champion of the, what we call the free grace view, said the same thing. He said, I've never said that. I would never say such a thing. They're saying, you can't tell in another person. So it's not up to me to decide whether you're a believer or not, whether you made a false profession of faith or not. That's between you and God. You, but you either did or you didn't. There's no middle category here. You either did or you didn't. Think about Ephesians chapters 2, 8, and 9. And I think this summarizes the way things ought to be. In Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. So then anyone should boast. Our salvation, our justification is not a result of works, plural. My, my works, in other words. It's a gift from God. It's a result of faith. Faith is not a work, by the way. It's not meritorious. There's no merit on my part when I exercise faith. It's a gift that God gives me. When God gives us a gift of salvation, we say, thank you. We exercise faith. Yes, I'm trusting Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to grant me eternal life apart from anything I can do. And I am saved. I am justified. I have the righteousness of God and I have eternal life and all the other things. I have forgiveness of sins. I have all the other things that take place at the moment I exercise faith in Christ. And you either have it or you don't. This idea of introducing a professing category just confuses everybody. You either are saved or you are not saved. And in a minute I'm going to talk about two different categories of people that are saved. There there are two categories. 
But then remember what Paul says in verse 10. He doesn't stop by saying that's the end of the game. God doesn't take us to heaven immediately after we exercise faith. There's more to life than that. We are left here for a reason. And he said, for you were created in Christ Jesus. Paul's favorite term for a believer. You were created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Which, by the way, he prepared beforehand. God prepared the opportunity for any good work you might perform. So it's the expected norm for us to do good works. That's what God expects from me. I'm his child. He expects me to act like his child. There was a man that was, I don't know if this is legend or if this is true, but it's recorded by ancient historians. There was a man that was brought before Alexander the Great and accused of cowardice. And Alexander himself was going to try the man because it was punishable by death. They brought him before Alexander. Alexander says, you've been accused of cowardice. By the way, what's your name? And he said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, your name's Alexander? And he said, yes, sir, my name's Alexander. And Alexander is reported to have said to him, you know what? You either need to change your behavior or change your name. Don't go around calling yourself Alexander if you're going to be a coward. And he spared his life. We are called by the name Christian. We have a responsibility to act like one. So by saying we're saved by grace through faith apart from works, it doesn't mean that we're anti-works. It just means we're saying that we're not saved by those works. And by the way, we're not kept saved by the works either. That's not part of it either. You're either saved or you're not. You've either trusted Christ or you haven't trusted Christ. We want others to behave correctly. We want it badly. And it bothers us so much when we see somebody in our family or some one of our friends not behaving as a Christian that we start wondering if they are a Christian. Now, if that wondering makes you give them the gospel again, that's fine. That's fine. But there's a real fine line that we walk over between giving them the gospel, wanting them to be in heaven, and starting to be judgmental on everybody that we run into. We need to be enormously careful starting to be the judge of someone else's life. It is the expected norm for those right now, let's talk about that have been saved, that have exercised faith in Jesus. It's the expected norm that we would perform good works throughout the course of our life, that we would move from a position of spiritual immaturity to a position of spiritual maturity, not just by what we know, but by applying what it is we know. That's the expected norm. That's what's supposed to happen. But... Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. It is possible for the believer to fail. Now, by saying that, I'm not making excuses for anybody, you, me, or anybody else. But it is possible. I'm not rationalizing away bad behavior on my part or your part or anybody else. I'm not trying to rationalize the whole thing away. But none of us lives in perfect righteousness experientially. We have God's righteousness but nobody lives consistently with that righteousness perfectly. And if there's anything I want you to come away with, not just tonight, but in the greater part of my ministry, is we have got to quit judging other people for the very same things that we ourselves do that we don't want anybody else knowing we're doing. Paul says that in Romans 2, doesn't he? When, when he comes to the moral person, the so-called moral person that doesn't think they need the righteousness of God, so guess what? The very same things that you're accusing them of doing, that you're putting them down for, you do them too. Now you may say, whoa, wait a minute, because in chapter 1 it's talking about sexual immorality, lesbianism, homosexuality, so I, that's not me. 
Yeah, but you still sin and fall short of God's glory. So we're in no position to judge. So when we get to these categories, I'll give you that the cold person in this might very well be an unbeliever, to use Jesus' metaphor. But both the lukewarm and the hot one are both believers. And I'll show you why. I think I can validate that from this text in just a moment. God disciplined those, he disciplines those that he loves. His wrath is reserved for those who have rejected him. But he disciplines those he loves just like, just like you do. Now there was a time, back in the 50s and 60s maybe, where other people disciplined you besides your parents. You know, I did something at school. If I got a whooping, dad told me, not only am I going to okay that whooping for you, but I'm going to give you another one when you get home. It's just a matter of general principle. Today, I understand that's quite different. There was, a, was it one of the Carolinas. One of the girls got a spanking from her father for acting out. She went and told her teacher at school that she had gotten a spanking from her father, and they went and arrested the father. A little bit of a different world now when it comes to, to discipline, but God disciplines the people that he loves. These are believers. What he's speaking about here is a disciplinary situation for believers. Now, watch what the problem is. Now that we've had that quick, hopefully, fairly quick theological aside, look at this. Because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of of my mouth. This is what Jesus thinks about people who have eternal life, but get so wrapped up in the things of the world that they don't need him anymore. And I'm not just making that up. Look at the next passage here. Because you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing... Now, that's material wealth. And we know historically that was a very wealthy city. He's saying, you think you're all that because you have all that. And he's saying, you have all that, but you're not all that. What you really are, as far as I'm concerned, you don't know that you're wretched and you're miserable. And guess what? You're poor and you're blind. He's not talking about being physically blind. He's talking about being spiritually blind. You don't even know what your own situation is. And naked, you're exposed. If one is naked, that means they're exposed. They're exposed not to the world, but they're exposed to the omniscient God who knows what their deeds are. All this ties together. He said that in verse 15, I know your deeds. And then in verse 17, I know you're blind and naked. You don't see your own nakedness, but I see it. Not physical, but spiritual nakedness. So what does he do? In verse 18, he gives them advice. I advise you to invest in something else. Not to invest in the wool trade where you're making all this money and you don't think that you need me anymore. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, he's not talking about physical gold. God's not a gold salesman. He's not a precious metal salesman. He's talking about something that's more valuable than gold. Remember back in Psalm 119? What's more valuable? God's Word. Invest in truth. Invest in living the way God wants you to live. That's what he wants, that you may become rich. Wait a minute, I thought they were already rich. They had a lot of money, but they weren't really rich. Now he wants them to really be rich. Now, by the way, this is not an argument against money. David was one of the richest people in the world at his time. Solomon was the richest man in the world of his time. So it's not saying you've got to throw away all your money. It's saying don't count on it. Don't get so focused in on the material things that we have. We say, I don't need God anymore. 
God considers us spiritually blind when that happens. And I want you to notice this is the only church here that's not getting any kind of commendation at all. This is a serious issue with God. When we think that we're all that and we don't need Him, when we think that I'm so healthy, I take my vitamins, I exercise, I run every day, I don't need you, Lord. Those are the kind of people, Lord says, you don't really need me? Well, here, have this heart attack. How many people have you known that have had heart attacks right after they come in from a run? A bunch. No, we need him. Our vitamins are not going to make us not need him anymore for health. Our money's not going to make us not need him for our physical sustenance. We need him every day. And by the way, who do you think gave you that money? God did. He just wants us to have the proper perspective so that we can see. He's going to give us an eye salve so that we can actually see the way that things really are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I mean, they go away, but they're going to grow strangely dim as we focus on him. In verse 19, those I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Watch, he's talking to the lukewarm believer. And he's saying, those I love. I'm gonna, he's going to discipline the lukewarm believer to get their attention so that they could repent and turn around. This is actually a lovely passage. It's a very inspiring passage if we just get all the players right. Then in verse 20, I have to tell you something about verse 20 before I mention specifics. Verse 20 has been used as a metaphor for the gospel countless times. There are people, and the way it goes is somebody said, well, do you know Jesus? You need to invite him into your life as a metaphor for faith. There have been countless people that have been saved by that gospel presentation. But it's actually taking this verse out of its context. That's not what this verse is. That's not the audience that this verse is talking about. He's not talking to the unbeliever. He's talking to the believer to get them to repent. When I was in seminary, I had a guy named Doug Cecil. Remember Doug? He taught personal evangelism. And he did a great job. He was, he was a really great teacher, a really great guy. Now, I will never forget, one day, uh, Dr. Cecil was going over this passage. And he was saying, look, guys, I know it's really popular. And he, he had a whole stack of tracts. He read each one of them. Each one of them used that same metaphor. You need to invite Christ into your life. Based upon this passage, they didn't even cite this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. They even cited it. And Professor Cecil said, I know a lot of people have been saved, but it's a really bad metaphor. For salvation. This is talking about something else, something that I'll mention to you in a minute. And we all said, yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense to me. Now, you know, God can use even a bad gospel presentation to get people saved because it's not up to us. The Holy Spirit picks out what's true and makes it clear. It wasn't 30 minutes later, <laughs> Whit was sitting out at the chapel service, an extremely well known graduate of Dallas Seminary was up preaching and he used the metaphor. <laughs> And all the faculty sits on the stage with the speakers. And I, was, I, I immediately looked over to Dr. Cecil, and he just went, he just went down like this. Well, it's not the best metaphor because it's taking it out of context. In its context, he's speaking to people who are the lukewarm, who are the believers but aren't living like they're believers. They're, they're rich, but they're really poor. They, don't, they can't see their own situation. And he says, watch, to you guys, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. I'm making an invitation. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. In an ancient context, the idea of dining with somebody was a, the idea of fellowshipping with that person. 
What Jesus is saying is, I'm standing right here. I want to be a part of your life. But you're going to have to let me in. This, this is not a salvation metaphor. This is a restoration to fellowship metaphor. And when we let him in, then he fellowships with us. It doesn't say anything in here about him chewing us out on the way in. He might have already done that because he's spit them out of his mouth. He's already let them know how unhappy he is with their lifestyle, their behavior, their lack of righteousness or righteous living. But this is a passage, this particular passage, is speaking about restoration to fellowship in its context. And finally, in verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. The one who overcomes is a co-heir with Christ. Every believer in the Lord Jesus is a co-heir with Christ. Every believer in the Lord Jesus, whether you're lukewarm or whether you're hot, you're still a co-heir with Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says exactly that. Now, not everybody is going to sit on the same throne physically. We will be sitting on that throne with Jesus, every single believer, because we're in Him, we're, we're heirs with Him. We share in all that He has. Now, there will be some that rule, physically rule. We see that from Luke chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 25. But we can't mix our passages and incorporate what we see in Luke chapter 19 over into this Revelation passage. That's not a wise hermeneutical technique. It's not good exegesis to do something like that. So everyone, in a sense, will rule with Christ because we're in Him. Some people, particularly, apparently, in the millennium, will have a special rule, a, a special reward as a result of faithfulness. But there is a sense in which each believer will sit on Christ's throne. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. That's where they need to be. Not on the things that Jesus has given us. And this isn't just money. There are so many things that we can make into idols, into things, things or even people that we count on. We try to establish a relationship so that if anything goes wrong, then I can always pick up the phone and call that person. You know who I'll be picking up the phone and calling? is Christ. Call God. He's the one that loves you dearly. He's the one that knows your deeds. He's the one that sought you and saved you and keeps you by His grace on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But we need to turn our eyes upon Him. We need to look fully into His wonderful face, meaning totally devoted to Him. And then the things of earth will grow dim. But they'll grow dim in the light of His glory and grace. In perspective, they'll grow dim. We must not let the prosperity of the world distract us from our focus on what's really important in life.